0: Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Ludmilla Faria is a psychiatrist at the University of Florida. She kindly joins us today to talk about attention deficit disorder. Good morning, and thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Let us start with what is probably a very simple question. It seems paradoxical that we give a stimulant to calm somebody down. Do we have any idea of the neurologic state of affairs that's going on when we do this? It, it's just It seems backwards. Your thoughts?
1: What is happening structurally is that the area of the brain, that helps us focus
0: and pay attention
1: it's towards the frontal lobe and it's not necessarily connected What happens is that the area that helps us focus and pay attention, it's not activated in people with attention deficit disorder. Therefore, the attention wanders, and sometimes there is restlessness or impulsivity that comes along with it. The idea of treating the disease is activating or stimulating that area of the brain so that people can glue their attention, for lack of a better word, into whatever activity they want to put their attention to.
0: Which is a fascinating concept. Our medicines do not just go to one place, they go everywhere in the body. Let's look a little bit more, though, at how it presents itself because it comes across in so many varieties inattentiveness, hyperactivity. It seems, however, that one of the problems that is facing those of us who have to diagnose it is how do we factor in for example, the possibility of a child acting out because of problems at home versus a strict attention deficit disorder. How do you go through a diagnostic workup?
1: Attention deficit disorder remains a clinical diagnosis. There are a couple of pen and paper tests and most recently a computer based test that we give to assess the severity of the inattention or the severity of any cognitive deficit that comes with the deficit of attention. But ultimately, it is a clinical diagnosis. That means that when the patient, the child or the adult goes to the psychiatrist, we evaluate everything and we do get a pretty comprehensive family, environmental, occupational, employment history to gather the idea of how pervasive the impairment is and what areas it is affecting. In doing that, we will certainly uncover issues at home that could be causing behavioral problems on the child. And then we also fine tune and ask more questions to figure out if the behavioral issue is generating the problems at home, the cause why the family is in such disarray, because it's very challenging to have a child with attention deficit, or there are things happening at home, let's say a divorce dysfunctionality, in the family that is fueling the child's behavior. I do agree it's important to distinguish the two things, but if the child is being evaluated through a comprehensive psychiatric interview during the initial visit, it is quite possible that the majority of the times the behavior will be separated if it's a clinical condition of attention deficit or if it's due to environment.
0: I think that's a very important point and perhaps too many people do not pay enough attention to it of separating the situations, I know someone who is an elementary school teacher. She tells me that there are a fair number of making various stimulants for ADD. She's not so convinced that they have ADD that maybe at home the medications might calm them down. It becomes very confusing very quickly because she sees how they interact at school. When they are sometimes not on medications, their mothers forget to give it to them in the morning. Multiple layers. Your point is very important and it takes time to make that distinction.
1: It is frustrating, but it's also, and this is uh, the population that I treat mainly is college age population, which is a population that has a hypersensitive diagnosis. They come in because they want to be evaluated for that. And one thing that I tell them all the time is that the medication is the last piece of the puzzle. Before you get to the medication, A lot of things need to be taken out and separated so that they can be addressed it is possible that a child has the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder and has issues at home as well. In that case, you give the medication, the symptoms might be resolved and academic performance might improve, but the behavior will remain because there's something else that's fueling that. I always think that medication is the last thing that you add on when you're pretty sure you address all of the other things. A lot of managing attention deficit disorder is not of taking the medication. It's learning how to set your environment up in a way that the medication will help. So you need to learn how to organize yourself. You need to learn how to maintain a schedule, the importance of routine, the importance of self-care. You need to learn ways of regulating your mood and your affect in a way that you do not let anger get the best of you. And then when all of that is in place and you add the medication, then it's perfection.
0: The sad thing is that in modern practices, for most of us, there is not enough time to do all those other necessary things. People come in, they need their medication. There's no time to look at the rest of their lives. That always bothers me. I'm sure you see it as well, even with college kids.
1: Yeah. And also you get people, this is a common complaint and anybody who practice will recognize this. Somebody comes in and says, I have two jobs, a family of four and I have to maintain my house. So I have very long days, 16-hour days. So I need to increase my medication or I need to be on medication because I need to be able to carry on all of the things that I need to do. Even if there is attention deficit disorder in that situation, there is no way you can medicate the environmental issue. There needs to be a lot of talking about the sustainability of having 16 hour days where you're constantly under stress and what that does to your body, Mm -hmm. right? And the ability to secure help and support within the household. That part is almost like the therapy or the life coaching part that is very necessary with attention deficit disorder. I agree with you. Sometimes there's just no time in the short visit to address all of that.
0: Is this a condition that people outgrow or is it pretty much with them for the totality of their lives?
1: Everything and then some. Some people develop it very early on in childhood and it continues to the majority of their life. What can happen is if they're very successful, they become very good at organizing. The impact of the illness is a lot less. And also, it is the more you are settled in a job and you know what you're doing and that learning curve flattens a little bit when you get to a certain age, then it might be easier to manage the illness without medication. Research has noticed that a lot of people develop ADHD as adults they were okay as children and adolescents, and then something which we do not know exactly if is a genetic trigger or environmental trigger, of, that they develop the symptoms, then it goes on for the rest of their life. It might be a problem because the medications that we use do have an effect on the body and the heart, and so as you go into you know, middle age and above, that needs to be a consideration.
0: How are you going to address the illness? it walks right onto the stage that mandates that it be monitored. And just not another quick refill the medicine, refill the medicine, refill. The-
1: yeah, you can definitely not have that stimulants, which is not the only pharmacological agent to treat ADHD. There are non-stimulant drugs. Certainly the ones that patients want to try and want to experiment first are stimulants. And that poses a problem. Stimulants affect the heart in a very direct way. They increase the force of the heart beating and they increase the frequency of the heart beating so they give you tachycardia they make your arteries contract there is an increase in blood pressure and of course when the blood pressure increases it affects the kidneys so there is a whole array of physical changes that happens when you take the medication it's not something that you can do lightly. It needs to be monitored. And sometimes it's very challenging to remind patients that we cannot just push the medications all the way to the highest dose without issues, especially in this day and age where it's very rare that we get a patient that is only on one medication. There's usually multiple medications, and the interactions make it even more complicated.
0: The comorbidity the coexistence of psychiatric issues and ADD. Sometimes you'll see somebody with extreme OCD and they're just all over the place or there's a hypomanic quality. Do people screen enough for these other comorbidities? Has it become just too quick? Here, take a Vivens, see you in a month.
1: I think that people don't screen enough. Sometimes depending on the age of the patient that comes to you, you're like, well, it doesn't seem, you know, what I'm hearing a lot of other mental illness or diagnosis they had not had their first episode yet so they come in and they look like pretty healthy they're in their late teens early 20s and they don't have any medical issues they deny any psychiatric illnesses and then you prescribe and to your surprise it turns out that they did have a comorbid illness either a mood disorder or anxiety disorder that they had not revealed. So I do believe that the more you screen to really make sure that you're treating what's actually bothering the patient, the more important it is. The main comorbidities that coexist tend to be anxiety disorder and depression. A child probably will come in with a lot of behavioral issues and maybe some anxiety disorder because of what's happening in the environment. Attention deficit, it's quite a disruptive disease. I know young kids who are in in elementary school that because of the hyperactivity portion of the illness, they become very impulsive. Sometimes it manifests as a little bit of aggressive behavior and it can be very challenging to the teacher and that creates an environment where the reaction of the adults and even the other kids who don't want that disruptive child to play with them increases the anxiety of the young patient. There is always a lot of anxiety around ADHD, the diagnosis, and how the diagnosis affects interpersonal relationships and the environment, but it can also coexist as a separate entity. It might have to be addressed separately. Sometimes the patients are more than happy to do and sometimes the patients have a significant stigma towards having a diagnosis of anxiety and depression, but not ADHD. I do have a lot of young adults that come in and they're like, yes, I accept that I have attention deficit disorder and I want to get treated. No, I do not accept that I have anxiety and depression and I don't want you to treat that. If you don't treat depression and anxiety, they will not go away and they continue to create structural changes in the brain that to a certain extent overlap with attention deficit. So here you are treating the attention deficit with stimulants, but the untreated anxiety and depression are causing structural changes through the limbic system and the hippocampus. And the patient comes back saying the medication is not working. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. So it becomes quite challenging to treat the illness and you have to have very long conversations about the fact that we're not addressing a major portion of what's going on. And unless we do that, you will not see the efficacy of the stimulants.
0: As much as time allows me to do when I'm dealing with someone who is on a stimulant after we've done all the mechanical things that we have to do or somewhere in the course of meeting with them, I very often say, and this is to dovetail with what you're saying, I'll say, so tell me about the rest of your life. Tell me what's going on. How's your job? How's your marriage? What's going on? And you find so much material that is beyond the presenting situation. And therein lies your diagnostic and treatment course. And I find it very distressing. And I'm agreeing with you. Maybe it's my own frustrations coming out. But it's gotten to be like people just want to get rid of their symptoms. They don't want to fix the cause.
1: That's correct. And, you know, sometimes you have to let them realize that for themselves within a couple of months that they are getting the medication and they come back and it's not really working. And then you have to resume that conversation back to what else is going on. The older the patient is when the diagnosis appears for the first time or they're finally diagnosed, the higher the chance that there are some maladaptive behaviors that were put in place to deal with the attention deficit and became ingrained and part of the patient's way of doing. One very simple example of that is cramming the night before an exam. The maladaptive behavior is waiting for that rush of adrenaline the night before an exam. It serves as internal Or endogenous stimulant. So under that much adrenaline, suddenly they become hyper focused and they cram for that exam. Then they go on and perform whatever they are able to do the next day. Once they are treated for ADHD, the maladaptive behavior of cramming the day before the exam and potentially using the medication prescribed or misusing the medication to stay up all night and study. Well, now I'm treating you and I'm treating the attention deficit. So you shouldn't really have to cram the night before the exam. I'm medicating you so you can organize yourself and you can study throughout the entire month prior to that exam so that the material is integrated and retained in your brain. But often people come with this maladaptive behavior that the stimulant medication is good to keep them awake before the exam and they shouldn't really be taking it on a daily basis for the month before the exam. It's a very common presentation in the population that I see, which is late teens, early 20s. Get an adult person that is even more pronounced and there are other maladaptive
0: behaviors. It speaks to the subtleties that are inherently so important to understanding this condition. And it's just not a simple, I can't concentrate, give me an Adderall, I'm fine. And I know I've said that theme over and over, but what you are looking into and explaining, to use the term, are the nuances of what we're treating and what the person is asking for help with. Let's jump to the treatments. Half the world has heard of Ritalin, what are the differences between the amphetamines, Ritalin, Stratera, Mudafinil, Intuniv, the antidepressants? Where do we get started with all of this?
1: The first treatment was a stimulant back in the 30s. By chance, a doctor that worked in a home for boys was trying to treat congestion with an amphetamine because it constricts the vessels and improves the congestion. Then one of the teachers at the school said a few of the kids that took the medication actually started performing a lot better. So then they did a few studies and they realized we're into something here. But the first medication that was released was Ritalin, but I believe that was in the 50s. It first came out to the treatment of deficit. I don't believe it was called attention deficit then. It has been used since then. The first line of medications were stimulants, and that's what people typically associate with attention deficit. Since then, other non-stimulant medications were added to the armamentarium, and those include bupropion or Welbutrin, Tratera or Atomoxetine. And they include guanfacine, clonidine, which are not necessarily psychiatric medications per se, but were initially used to control blood pressure. But we found out that they actually quite helpful as an add-on to the treatment of attention deficit. stimulants. the ones that are FDA approved, include amphetamines, which can be the amphetamine salts or double amphetamines, which is the Adderall. Or you can have a single amphetamine like dexedrine or vivans, which is lisamphetamine. The methylphenidate, which is a different stimulant, and within that category have ritalin, focalin, the long-acting ones, and concerta, which was engineered in a way that it releases very slowly throughout the day. Those are still the most commonly used, sometimes maybe a stimulant is not a good choice if there is fear or suspicious or misuse of the stimulants. I already talked a little bit about the issues and dangers of using stimulants, so we decide to use a non-stimulant medication.
0: This speaks, again, to the importance of the subtleties and the nuances attached to properly diagnosing this condition and properly treating it. Now the big elephant that's always in the room these days, is there any sense that marijuana, because people are using it for everything, Mm -hmm. that marijuana is helpful, not helpful?
1: We know a lot and I am so happy that you actually asked the question. Personally, I think the tracking over the last few years and in the near future is that we're probably gonna have it legalized, federal legalization for both recreational and medical use. There are medical uses for marijuana, but most of them are not psychiatric illnesses. Marijuana does not treat psychiatric illnesses, despite what the grapevine says. People can use it to relax the same way as a glass of wine, but it's not a medication, and people need to be very careful. Contrary to wine, marijuana has a very long half-life. The half-life is four days or more. That's why it stays in the system for very long. And one of the effects that it has is impairing working memory and other cognitive function, which goes straight into overlapping with the deficits in attention deficit. So basically, by using marijuana, you are accentuating the deficits of the illness. So it definitely does not treat attention deficits. Now, what I always post to my patients is, so you have this compound that you're using recreationally or medically that stays in your system for a month impairing the very thing that we want to treat with the stimulant. And then I give you a stimulant who stays very briefly in your system. Stimulants are very short-acting Don't last over 24 hours in your system. I'm trying to treat and going in one direction and what you're using recreationally is bringing you back. So we're kind of fighting each other. That's why it's not a good combination. I often tell my patients that use it a lot that basically they're wasting their money on the stimulant because it's not going to break through the marijuana in the sense that marijuana, it's a much more longer acting agent than the medication that I'm giving. Another subtlety, marijuana is working on the brain and basically worsening the symptoms of the illness. My stimulant that I'm prescribing is not being able to do anything in the brain because marijuana is present there. It still causes side effects on the heart, potentially on the kidney, on the rest of the body. Now you have all of the possible side effects and problems of using a stimulant without any of the benefits.
0: Mm, So true. This is fascinating. We could talk for hours. The clock always wins. Ludmilia de Faria is a psychiatrist. She speaks with great insight and experience about attention deficit disorder. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.